0: I'd like to talk about practicing in an embodied way, practicing with embodiment. Of course, there's really no other way to practice. What would that be? <laughs> you know, a non-embodied practice. <laughs> Although it seems that we somehow do that a lot, you know, where we're basically in our thoughts, in our minds about the practice quite a bit. And uh, in sort of institutional spirituality and religious life, that's that emphasis on transcendence. The world, the body is bad. And it's bad by association, you know, because we find suffering here in life, in the body, in relationship, in the messiness of the world. So it it makes sense in a superficial, ignorant sort of way that our initial impulse will be, if I could just get out of here, away from the complications and limitations of the body, away from the limitations and complications of relationship, relating, then. And we get a little taste of that in the disembodied state, being in our thoughts about things. Because our thoughts about things, you know, our imaginings, to some degree aren't bound by the limitations of the body, you know how it is when we're dreaming, right? You can have amazing dreams, <laughs> flying dreams, or you know whatever it might be. But there's something, um, you know, that we sometimes notice in our fantasies, our imaginings, our dreams like not wanting them to end, wanting to get back to them, feeling that dependence, and feeling betrayed when they're proved to be false or proved to be what they are, just an imagining. So I think it's fair to say that there's no actual spiritual awakening, actual spiritual um, freedom that's somehow not embodied. What human beings, what spiritual beings, what we're interested in, I think, is what does freedom, how might freedom look and feel when it's like this, when there's a living being with a body and a mind, living a life. What kind of freedom is available? What sort of release is available? This is one of the things that can be so appreciated appreciated about the Buddhist teachings and just more generally the tradition And it was, you know, just a a necessary um, correction or different point of view than the prevailing understanding at the time, which which is similar to a lot of human culture. Um, The point of life is to get into heaven, to get into some special place, to become a celestial being, right? And uh, if you're really good, then you get rewarded. It's a very childlike thing. I mean, we learn this as a kid. If you do what mommy says, daddy says, you'll get dessert, or you'll get, you know, your allowance, or you'll get to stay up late, or, you know, whatever the reward was. So if you persevere in life, if you behave yourselves, then you'll get something. And, you know, there's some evidence like this. There is some um, basic wisdom that sacrifice leads to gain. You know, putting aside short-term desires can allow someone to get more important and more relevant, you know, reward at the end. While all of you are wasting your money on this and that, you know, I'm saving up, so I'm going to end up, you know, you'll drink your money away with kombucha or (laughs) super duper lattes or whatever it is, but not me. You know, it's uh, it's true, but it's also rings hollow because in the end we die. The miserly person dies with their money in the bank and the other people die with a happy belly full of kabucha <laughs> <laughs> or super mocha, double caramel. About me. <laughs> You're not the only one in this room who likes kabucha. Oh <laughs> That's that's a superior superior manas, right? <laughs> there we could all confess our addiction to beverages. I'm a green tea junkie. I'm sure my green tea habit is as, as expensive as almost anybody else's beverage habit. <laughs> So, this is the knot, this is the tangle, this is the very interesting spiritual um, predicament. Like, what does freedom look like? Being a sexual being, being a social being, being an aging being, you know, being a being conditioned by culture that is so ignorant and so many amazing ways you know just the limitation of cultural conditioning and how ignorance confusion is just sort of passed along generation by generation both culturally and then within family systems things like you know around gender how that gets conditioned in And so, it's just very interesting. And it, you know, it, the first phase is thinking that uh, it's sort of the Garden of Eden delusion, that life is this amazing paradise, we've got this body, we've got this privileged situation, let's make the best of it, you know, and if it breaks, we throw it away, we get something new, so many interesting things to do, trips to take, restaurants to eat at and the sort of life of the body is really seen as a promise like the purpose of the body, of embodiment, of being here in this embodied place is to enjoy ourselves, to get something, to get satisfaction And we do get a little frustrated when people seem to get in our way of getting what we want, whatever it might be. But if we're an optimistic type, we just keep bouncing back. Okay, I haven't got it yet, but I'll get it. I'll I'll get my act together. I'll finally make it so that life delivers embodied happiness that pleasure. And then when you know, when the conditions show up with, you know, enough frequency of betrayal, then we somehow think that life and embodiment is out to get us, out to torment us. It's like a sick joke. The the whole you know, the other half of the eight worldly winds praise and blame, you know, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain, success and failure, when we're getting the difficult stuff, illness, aging, loss. It's so interesting when we, even little things happen in the body, what a betrayal it can be. I've had a few quirky things this last year, last 12 months in my body. Nothing really terrible, but you know, just enough to notice that sense like, uh, you know, just the delusion that I have a body that delivers. I have a body that's ready to do what it needs to do, get up and go and do what needs to be done. And then when it doesn't, it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, how did that happen? It's sort of surprising. We don't realize what we've taken for granted until, of course, it gets interrupted, and then we realize, oh. So, whether we have an optimistic sense of the body or a pessimistic sense of the body, both of them are sort of dead ends in a way. Thinking that the body's going to save us or deliver happiness, thinking that the body, it's such an ego trip to think the body's out to get me. You know, like somehow my illness or my aging or my whatever not being as handsome or beautiful as I want to be, or as strong, or whatever, um, that it's personal. You know, like a personal failing, my fault, or God's fault, or somebody's fault, that it's the way that it is. It's so interesting to observe the mind when we're around people who have lives and bodies that we really want or really don't want. And just to notice like the kind of status we immediately give to somebody who has a body that we like. Or somebody who has a body that we don't like. You know the kind of immediate pity or sort of downgrading. I mean, it's just really good to be honest with ourselves about that delusion, basically equating body with happiness, equating conditions with happiness. And that really sets us up. And we can, you know, do the good talk. Oh, you know, it's okay. I'll adapt, adjust if something changes. I know it won't always be this way. It's why it's really good that even though the Buddha realized in his own life and practice that asceticism was a dead end, like... It itself doesn't lead to happiness by denying your body enough food or enough sleep or enough comfort that doesn't lead to any lasting inside happiness but it doesn't mean it isn't useful to explore you know whatever it might be not putting a sweater on when we're cold just as a kind of experiment in truth Oh, do I have to be a suffering being because I'm cold? Or skipping a meal? Even though it's totally okay to eat that meal, just to notice the full-fledged panic as if missing a meal. I mean, it's actually probably healthy to skip meals, but it's amazing how much pushback there is in the mind when we decide to skip a meal. or, you know, to get by with a little bit less sleep than is probably what the body wants for a couple nights or any other number of ways to expose the ideas that happiness comes from having the embodied experience that we want. The Buddha, in one of his talks, says, Whoever pervades the great ocean with one's awareness encompasses whatever rivulets flows down into the ocean. In the same way, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing. Right? So if you want to learn about what wholesome qualities are available in our hearts, practice being intimate with the body. And he goes on, when one thing is practiced and pursued, the body is calmed, the mind is calmed, thinking and evaluating are still stilled and all qualities on the side of clear knowing go to the the culmination of their development which one thing? mindfulness immersed in the body when one thing is practiced and pursued ignorance is abandoned clear knowing arises the conceit I am is abandoned latent tendencies are uprooted betters are abandoned which one thing? mindfulness immersed in the body, those who do not taste mindfulness of the body do not taste the deathless, those who taste mindfulness of the body taste the deathless, which is another word for freedom or nibbāna, those who are heedless of mindfulness of the body are heedless of the deathless, those who comprehend mindfulness of the body comprehend the deathless. So this is this body, this embodied state, being a sensitive human being, a feeling human being. This is the ground, the working ground of freedom. This is where suffering and release all play out, play themselves out. There's a really interesting discourse where the Buddha talks about Mara, as Wynne talked about Mara as this personification of the unwholesome qualities of our minds, Mara finds opportunity and support without mindfulness of the body and the image he uses a number of different images including one where you throw uh, a nice sized stone into soft clay it's going to make a real impression that heavy stone being thrown into soft clay but if you throw a ball of yarn at a solid wooden door it's not going to make any impression at all and he's talking about mindfulness immersed in the body as this great protector and without it if we're not grounded if we're not having cultivated that anchor then mara finds opportunity and support all the unwholesome just like in the sutta i just read all the wholesome qualities gather round when we're with the body. It's like really hard to be intimate with the body, bodily sensation, breath, movement, without all the wholesome qualities being developed. When mindfulness of the body has been repeatedly practiced, developed, cultivated, used as a vehicle, used as a basis, established, consolidated, and well undertaken, these benefits may be expected. In the Buddha list ten, here are some of them. One becomes a conqueror of discontent and delight, right? So we're not thrown off by either delight or discontent. One becomes a conqueror of fear and dread. One bears cold and heat, hunger and thirst, and mosquitoes, wind, (laughs) the sun, and creepy things. (laughs) One endures ill-spoken words and bodily feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing, and menacing to life. One here and now enters upon and abides in the deliverance of the heart. Well, that's an impressive list. So, how do we cultivate this this uh, wholesome <clears throat> aspiration to live in an embodied way? You know, humans. We humans are really inspired, moved by stories. And you know, there are many. I'm hoping we've all had many experiences with bodies, whatever it might have been, some of you have given birth, you might remember, you know, holding the body of your newborn and what that was like, or maybe you were at the birth of someone and held a young child, or whatever it might be, holding your lover, connecting with your own body in some way. Here's a little silly story. But it was actually, it really was a marker of a shift in consciousness, I forget exactly what year it was, but it was probably around fourth grade, give or take, a year or two. And I just noticed, I, I became conscious of my body in a new way. I just noticed there was some, you know how you can get dirt building up sort of between your index finger and your thumb, in that little web area? and. Uh, I just noticed that, someday, you know, fourth grader, (laughs) but it, it sort of, it was like shocking that it wasn't the dirt so much as noticing the lack of awareness of my body, like here it is, my body, and I was oblivious that dirt had been building up in my hand, and it was like, it was a real turning point, like, oh my God. You know, I got to take care of this thing. <laughs> There's nobody else who's gonna do this. and uh, and it was it was that very appropriate and natural repulsion of being the one who was oblivious, like seeing appropriate danger in being oblivious. Like that's not the way. I don't know much as a fourth grader but I knew being oblivious to dirt on my hand was not in the direction of anything I was interested in. Right? I could see the writing on the wall enough to know where that led. <laughs> I know it might sound kind of silly, but you might find your own version of that like a kind of owning embodiment. Like it, liking it or not but realizing that not owning it is not a useful strategy, ignoring the body, is, ignoring the bodily needs is not a helpful strategy given that we're living in a body. Having a respectful and sensitive relationship with the body seems to be more useful. Right. How are you doing? What do you need? Can I take a rain check, get to you this evening on that, <laughs> you know? But, but somehow having a respectful relationship, wondering and being interested in what, what does this body, what does this life, what does this relationship with this other person, what does it require? And, you know, in those moments where we sort of noticed life in a new way, sometimes we're shocked by the strength, the just the strength in life. I, some of you have heard me mention this story, but I was visiting my relatives on the farm slash ranch that my dad grew up in eastern Montana, and... Uh, kind of a mini family reunion and they were going to ha- bring in one of the they um, raised cattle and uh, they would bring in one of the cows that have given birth so they could have milk for themselves it was in a dairy farm they didn't sell milk so in the big range you got to drive out with a pickup and you take one of the calves in the back of the pickup and drive slowly and the mother follows the calf into the barn, so that, you know, for the next number of months or whatever, they could take some of the milk for themselves. And so my cousin was driving the pickup, and he asked me to go along with them and I was holding a calf that was just a couple of days old, I'm not sure how old, but not that old. But it was strong, I mean, it was amazingly, And it, you know, the, just the, it would exhaust itself, and it would go completely still for, you know, a minute, two minutes, three minutes. And then it would really struggle to get free. And then it would go really still. And this, you know, we had to drive pretty slow because the, the cow couldn't walk very fast because it was full of milk and just, you know, you know, had just given birth. And so this took at least a half an hour, probably longer. And... Um, So I had a a long time to contemplate this new embodied creature. And just the amount of respect for the beauty and the strength and the intelligence. I mean, just the life is truly amazing, you know. And that's not a romantic or it really is a mystery that can't be grasped by the thinking mind like how it all, just the, uh, how complex and how much grace, gracefulness there is in the complexity of life, like how it can even work, is pretty amazing, and just to sort of be there spellbound for that period of time. You know, we've had other little moments, I'm sure, you know, each of us have had, and this body right here is no different than those experiences we've had with our, with a puppy or with a bird or with a this or with a that, a dying person. You know, the mystery, if it's anywhere, it's gotta be here. The brilliance of life, it's gotta be here. The resilience and strength of nature, right, it's all got to be here. It's not just that wild animals are amazing, you know, it's like we're so impressed by the strength and the grace and the healing capacity and abilities to smell and see and, you know, that wild animals have. and. We don't have that same kind of awe and respect for this body. And of course this body, this life, is just a microcosm of the whole world, of all of nature. You know, I'm sure some of you have read a little bit about embryology, but you, if you haven't, it's just amazing like when the sperm fertilizes the egg, you know, and you get the ovum and you get the whole evolutionary process right there just in that nine-month period it's like everything repeats itself from the beginning of time right there in the little ocean of the womb tadpole, reptilian, you know, the whole all the way up to you get a little kid eventually that grows up so it's not, you know, when we say that the world, nature is all here it is in a very ordinary, basic sense, all here. The genetic code, you know, as much as humans understand it, is sort of, it's got a lot of information, <laughs> just in that, you know, a little bit of whatever it is, protein. And we're just the, the dance of that, the sort of expression of that And I'm just saying this as a way to evoke a a kind of interest and respect because you know how it is. One more breath in, one more lifting, one more placing, one more stiff shoulder or neck. It just feels like, hey, I know this. I don't have to show up. The best approach the best way of relating to life, the life of the body, is just to not be here, to find some pretty good entertainment, which here on retreat means are fantasies or thoughts about this and that, right? Unless you're cheating. <laughs> sure, nobody's cheating. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's amazing how desperate we are to not be with the body. How interesting books we would never pick up seem to be. (laughs) By the way, you know, the general etiquette is, or ask is not to read any of the books that the center has. We have a few books out to be used for 15 or 20 minute spurts when you need a little dharma input. But it's a real discipline to be left Naked, with the vibrating, tingling, achy reality of the body, the sensitive body, and to really train in letting this be our teacher. This is our guru, our teacher, the sort of beating heart and breathing lungs. And all the mentality, all the thoughts and emotions we have about embodied life, not liking the food, liking the food, not liking the temperature, liking the temperature, enjoying the waves, being irritated by the waves, liking the breeze, not that much of a breeze. You know, it's just uh this is the world, the sort of visceral energetic world of the body that we're going to learn everything we need to learn, see everything that we need to see. This is from Wendell Berry, um, an article, The Unforeseen Wilderness. Always in the big woods, when you leave familiar ground and step off alone into a new place, there will be, along with the feelings of curiosity and excitement, a little nagging of dread. It is the ancient fear of the unknown and it is your first bond with the wilderness you are going into what you are doing is exploring you are undertaking the first experience not of the place but of yourself in that place and right? so not of the body it's not the body so much but our experience in the body, the mind in the body. That's really what we're knowing. There's no body without the mind, the sensitive mind, the sensitive heart. We're knowing the mind, the sensitivity of the body, being in the body. He continues and writes It is an experience of essential loneliness. For nobody can discover the world for anyone else. It is only after we have discovered it for ourselves that it becomes a common ground and a common bond, and we cease to be alone. And in a way, you know, all the kind of belonging and healing we have experienced with other, with others, with other beings, it all begins by feeling like we belong in the body in this experience of embodiment sometimes we learn it first out there, you know, in the relationship with a dog, for example but that relationship with that beast is really kind of a more external expression of our relationship with our own body So whether we start with our body or we have to find our way back to the body, we have to heal, allow this healing of the mind and body. And this is the anchor. When we use embodiment as an anchor, the breath as an anchor, the physicality of walking as an anchor, the physicality of sitting still, as an anchor, we're really creating the ground for this basic healing, the safety of belonging, feeling like we belong in this life. It's not like life has become suddenly perfect. It's just the way that it is. But somehow there's this amazing sense of belonging it not needing to be different and this can happen no matter the difficulties that we might be going through with illness or you know any number of challenges that humans experience it's possible to feel to realize that we really belong here And like I mentioned earlier there's really not another option you know running from our life just doesn't work being numb or disconnected or angry at the body expecting the body to be different than it is it just it's unbearable basically this is a passage from some writing of Alice Miller the truth, of our, the truth about our childhood is stored up in our body and although we can repress it we can never alter it our intellect can be deceived our feelings manipulated and conceptions confused and our body tricked with medication but someday our body will present its bill For it is as incorruptible as a child who still whole in spirit will accept no compromises or excuses and it will not stop tormenting us until we stop evading the truth. Our body has a way of getting our attention. And then when we give it some attention, we'll see we feel directly the healing. The healing has a very particular taste. And even though it can feel so yucky to come back to the body, it also feels so right not to have to be running or in denial. I got this really powerful email from one of my students um, who's just had a lot of body dukkha medical issues. And she quoted that passage, I think Wynne read from, with Thich Nhat Hanh about, uh, imagine a flower in the morning, the flower is not yet open. The sunshine embraces the flower and the energy of the sunlight begins to penetrate the flower. The sun doesn't go, just go around the flower, the light naturally penetrates the flower and an hour later the flower has to open itself to the sun. The sun is our mindfulness, embracing the flower of our feelings, You could say of our body. So she quotes Thich Han that passage I just read, and then she writes, Sometimes the baby will cry even louder when it's held, because it knows that it's safe to cry. So perhaps the body feels okay to hurt, because it knows it's being paid attention to. I've been waiting so long to be seen. It's just such a powerful expression of someone's healing journey through this awareness of the body. Here's, um one of the Buddhist Dharma teachers, writers, Um, he's really dug into this topic Reggie Ray he's written a couple books i'm not sure if touching enlightenment that's the name of this article if i'm forgetting the name of this book um but i i like it i don't you know he comes from the tibetan tradition so i don't align with everything that's there but the basic teaching is really important so i just want to read a couple paragraphs his article, Touching Enlightenment, and with the emphasis on touching, he writes, For me, and for many people I know, there's a kind of divine intervention that arrives at our doorstep and calls us back to our body. This can take many forms, injury, illness, extreme fatigue, impending old age, sometimes emotions, feelings anxiety anguish or dread that we don't understand and can't handle but at a certain point we start to get pulled back into our body one way or the other something comes in sometimes with a terrifying crash and begins to wake us up when we operate in a disembodied state we tend to understand the experiences of our life as random relatively insignificant and boring we go to great lengths to try to find something interesting or significant in our life and the more boring and gray everything gets the more we look to sex or violence or mind-altering substances or anything that can give us some kind of rush anything to break through the phenomenal boredom and general meaninglessness of our existence. Sounding familiar? We might find ourselves thinking, next week I'm going to this great restaurant where maybe I can have a meal I actually enjoy, or next month I'm going on vacation, and maybe then I'll be in a place that will actually catch my attention and mean something, and so on. The problem with our life does not lie in the individual circumstances or occurrences of our day-to-day existence. It's not that they are inherently meaningless or boring. The problem is that we make them meaningless and boring because we are so invested in maintaining our own sense of self. We actually don't relate to anything in a direct way. Unwilling to fully live the life that is arriving in our bodies moment by moment, we find ourselves left with no real life at all. And in our state of disembodied dissatisfaction, that's a nice phrase, oh, disembodied dissatisfaction is being known. (laughs) We may think, I feel like I'm disconnected, maybe I need to change my job or change my relationship. Maybe, 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 but the fact is that the fullness of our human existence is already happening all the time. And that's such a interesting kind of opening, isn't it? And I think we get a little of this when we get away from technology and are just alone, especially out in a more natural setting. You know, we always sort of joke about how, those of you who camp, you know, how good food tastes when we're camping. (laughs) Or how beautiful things are, you know. In a way, we could see a nice tree in the city, but, you know, big deal. So it's it's like how do we rediscover the life, the mystery that's here. It's really about a shift in attitude. Doesn't mean that going on a Buddhist retreat or taking a trip out into nature won't help, but it helps because it helps shift the attitude. Because I've taken a lot of trips out into nature. I remember distinctly one of my first real trips to the wilderness, right after college, hiking um, high up in the Sierra Crest, I mean really in the middle of nowhere, and, and it was another one of those awakening moments, because I was in an amazing place and uh, doing technical climbing and it was really just an amazing adventure. And all of a sudden I realized that my mind was totally obsessing about stuff that had nothing to do with where I was. And the absurdity hit home in a deep way. Like, how crazy. Uh, First of all, how much work it was to carry this heavy backpack this many days to get into this remote place up and down and up and down dragging stuff, you know. And then to be obsessing about something that had nothing to do where I was. It was so shocking to see that reality. But at least it stood out, you know, what was happening, how untrained the mind was, how the mind really didn't know how to land in reality. And I bet we could trace back through our life every few years where we've had a little bit deeper of that same insight basically it's an insight into dukkha a liberating a painful but liberating insight into the reality of dukkha that my mind my heart doesn't know how to land in the life that's being lived here doesn't know how to inhabit fully the life that's being lived here? Does it know how to feel like it belongs? And it's really, does it know how to give and receive love is another way to reflect on this. And a lot of my life I've wanted to give and receive love, but it's a rare occurrence where that flow is rich, Effortless, frictionless, where the love, the giving and receiving of love is just a thing of wonder, a thing of nature. Really healing in that way. And in a way, when we when we're in that place, we realize it's kind of our birthright freedom, this flow of love, this feeling like we belong. And yet we spend most of our life not only not there, but not even remembering there's a there there, right? Like not even missing it, which is, it's like we become a spiritual being when at least we know we're missing it. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, this is not what, whatever this is, it's not what life is about. This is missing it, right? I'm a neurotic What 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 was that phrase? Disembodied dissatisfaction. This is a life of disembodied dissatisfaction. It's like where the habit is choosing a kind of numbness, the numbness of distraction, of being lost in thought. Somebody, I think, asked Ajahn Buddhadasa, this very well-known Thai Buddhist monk and meditation teacher, and quite influential... With the Buddhism that's come to the West, I think it was him, but anyway, like, how would you characterize, you know, human civilization, and he just had this very pithy short answer, lost in thought, lost in thought, disconnected in that way. Beck writes, she's this wonderful, powerful Zen teacher, she died maybe seven years ago or so, with unfailing kindness your life always presents what you need to learn, whether you stay at home or work in an office or whatever, the next teacher is going to pop right up, and, of course, the question is, you know, are we going to be there? <laughs> are we going to recognize it? And, you know, the thing is, we know we're suffering, but we're kind of attached to it, the drama of it. Pema Children's line, observe the very peculiar pleasure you derive from being unhappy. Because it's an in an egoic way, it's, a, it's an organizing principle in our mind, in our heart, our unhappiness. It's how we gather and bring some coherence to the sense of me and self. And that's really what we spend a lot of time talking to our friends about, right? Our unhappiness and our plans about, what we're going to do about that. And I I find it really useful, it's not pleasant, but really useful to, to start noticing how unsatisfying that is to talk about my plans for becoming happy. You know, whatever it is. Renovating the house, buying a cabin, going on a longer retreat, taking a sabbatical. I mean, these are just things that my mind plays with, you know, getting into shape, dancing more, I mean I could probably rattle off a hundred thoughts that come to mind. I read something recently about um, somebody talking about their dog. I would never want a dog. But I suddenly thought, I think a dog would be good for me. (laughs) I'll never do it, but (laughs) (laughs) I just end by uh, reading a little bit from uh, the Buddha's. Discourse on Mindfulness of the Body. And uh, Ajahn Saro's translation, he titles this, he translates the Buddhist title or the title from the tradition as Mindfulness Immersed in the Body. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying in Savati at Jetta's Grove, not the Pindaka's Monastery. Now at that time a large number of monastics after the meal and returning from their alms round had gathered at the meeting hall and this discussion arose. Isn't it amazing friends, isn't it astounding the extent to which mindfulness immersed in the body when developed and pursued is said by the Buddha, the one who knows, who sees, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one, to be of great fruit and great benefit. And this discussion came to no conclusion. Like they remembered the Buddha said that, mindfulness immersed, immersed in the body. Good, good, go for it. But they didn't remember why, right? <laughs> and a little later the Buddha came in and asked what they were talking about and they said, we remembered that you praise mindfulness immersed in the body but we couldn't come to any conclusion like what was that all about? So the Buddha, uh, being generous and compassionate, says, he asks a question and then he answers it. And how is mindfulness immersed in the body developed? How is it pursued so as to be a great fruit and great benefit? There is the case when a practitioner having gone to the wilderness to the shade of a tree, to an empty building or a metta meditation center sits down folding one's leg cross sitting in a chair kneeling, holding the body upright, setting mindfulness to the fore, always mindful, one breathes in, mindful, one breathes out. Breathing in long, one discerns, one, uh, one discerns the breath is long. Or breathing out long, one discerns the breath is out, the out-breath is long. Or breathing in short, one discerns that it's short. Breathing out short, one discerns that the out-breath is short. One trains oneself to breathe in sensitive to the entire body, to breathe out sensitive to the entire body. One trains oneself to breathe in calming the body, to breathe out calming the body. And as one remains thus heedful, ardent, resolute, any memories, resolves related to sensuality, worldly life are abandoned and with their abandoning, one's mind gathers, settles inwardly, grows unified, centered. This is how one develops mindfulness immersed in the body. This is just the first of several instructions the Buddha gives. And it's really about putting aside distraction. Are we willing to come home? But to come home, right? we have to have enough continuity enough integrity of awareness that the mind is close enough, intimate enough to know whether it's a long or a short breath. If we don't know, if we're not close enough and continuous enough to have some sense of what that in-breath was just like, we're not really there. And then there's payback, immediate payback. Because once we can be so full so connected, so continuous with the breath that we really can discern like whether it's a long breath or a short breath then the mind can begin to relax in relationship with the body so it starts to feel the whole body there even though the breath may still be in the forefront now the mind isn't excluding anything it's like growing roots into the whole experience of embodiment, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, whole body awareness. It's all right there. Where else would it be but in the present moment, all that sensitivity? And that's what the body, the Buddha means by, you know, breathing in sensitive to the whole body. And then that inclusive awareness is calming. That calm really is the healing of the body mind relationship and the and the calm spreads right that's what we're doing so that's just an example of anchoring with the primary you know object embodiment and having this basic healing of non-distraction really coming home And then the next two sections of this sutta, the Buddha is talking about being mindful of the four postures. When walking, one discerns, I'm walking. When standing, one discerns, I'm standing. When sitting, when lying down, one discerns, I'm sitting or lying down. However the body is disposed, that is how it is discerned. And as one remains thus heedful, ardent and resolute, any memories, any resolves, Any entanglements, right, you could say, related to my hopes and fears, my thoughts about this and that, are abandoned because we're aware of the posture. We can be aware of sitting now, even while listening. Being intimate with sitting actually supports comprehending the words. And then the next section is about daily activities when going forward, when returning, when looking forward, looking away, when bending, when extending one's limbs, when carrying something, right, eating, drinking, chewing, savoring, urinating, defecating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, remaining silent, one makes oneself fully alert. And as one remains thus heedful, ardent, resolute, Any entanglements related to sensuality, worldly life, are abandoned. With their abandoning, the mind heals, it gathers, settles inwardly, grows unified and centered. This is how a practitioner develops mindfulness immersed in the body. And then the next is just training the mind to see the body in an ordinary way, skin, flesh, and bones, to sort of the short version of it not really special, it's just this throbbing, pulsing life, this amazing coming together of the elements. And it goes on, the Buddha talks about the impermanence of the body, that not only is it born, but it also falls apart, breaks apart, decays, turns back to dust. So it's, this is what we're training in heaven. It's not the idea of the body parts or the idea of the elements that went posted on the bulletin board or the idea that the body's going to rot and fall apart if we don't burn it first. But it's those ideas, we need to remove the wrong idea that the body is special, that the body is personal that whatever it is, it's going to last. That's all we have to do. We don't need to replace neurotic ideas with other ideas. We need to drop the mind's dependence on its ideas about embodiment, about the body, because they get in the way of being intimate. We can't really be with the breath when we have ideas about the breath that the mind is attached to or having an idea that I'm good at mindfulness of breathing and being identified with that thought gets in the way of being with the breath in and the breath out. We have to really make a choice, being lost in thought or learning to be in the experience of embodiment. And it's really important to have humility, like to realize right now Being deluded is winning, right, mostly. But having gotten on the path, we realize we're not okay with this predicament of being deluded. And we have some intuition of what's possible. And we don't really care how long it will take because that's just more mental drama, right? Oh, poor me! I should have started when I was younger. Should have become a nun, a monk, or whatever. I never should have gotten that dog. Gotta <laughs> pick it for walks. It gets in the way of my mindfulness. <laughs> it's useful, like, and we have quite a bit of time when you really break it down. How many moments, you know, in the next, whatever it is, 40 hours or so? There are a lot of moments. And, and if we can have many, many fresh moments returning to the body in a fresh way with a lot of humility, like, I don't even know your name. I don't even know where you are, but I want to meet you. I want to have a nice relationship with you, I want to get to know you, you know, that kind of innocence when we return, because what definitely doesn't work, you know, those of us who've been at it for a while, we can say with real conviction, absolutely it doesn't work to do the practice on autopilot, it has to be fresh, it has to be real, we actually have to be interested. It can't be faked, right? Because when we do it on autopilot, where do we end up? We end up in a trance state, or we end up really bored, and then we become more addicted to our fantasies because we're so bored. We'll take anything, any kind of entertainment. So... Happy practicing? <laughs> <laughs> Take a few seconds and let go of the words. Saying hello to our live right here.